Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I just finished having the pleasure to interview Dr. Christopher Shannon about his book, co-authored with Christopher Bloom, The Past is Pilgrimage, Narrative, Tradition, and the Renewal of Catholic History. Now, this was, to me, a very interesting book. And this is kind of, in a sense, an experiment for our channel. Uh, Usually, I am looking at books uh, that are written about Christians, right? Christian studies, it's focusing on Christianity or how Christians have been interacting with non-Christians, something about people studying Christians. This book's a little bit different because it's not so much written about Christianity as within Christianity, particularly the Catholic tradition of Christianity. And in this book, uh, Dr. Shannon and Dr. Bloom explore what it, in a sense, means to be a Catholic historian and how being a Catholic historian might be different uh, from being another kind of historian. And um, I thought this was was an interesting book, and I'm hoping that for those of you who um, are not uh, Catholics, uh, that you'll still will get something out of it. I think there's a lot to be gotten out of it because it does raise a different kind of understanding of what history is. And I'm hoping that people will enjoy this and I'll be able to do more such interviews within a tradition as expo- as opposed to just being about a tradition. So uh, without further ado, uh, please enjoy the interview with Dr. Shannon. Unfortunately, Dr. Um, Bloom was not able to join us. So with that, uh, please enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Christian Studies. I'm Dr. Franklin Roush of Lander University, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Professor Christopher Shannon about his new book, The Past is Pilgrimage, which he co-authored with Dr. Christopher Bloom, who unfortunately is not able to be with us today. Uh, This is really a fascinating book, and I want to welcome Dr. Shannon, or I'm sorry, Chris, to the show. Uh, Thank you, Frank. Thank you for having me. Oh, well, thank you for joining us and taking all this time, especially when you're, you're so busy. So I wonder if we could begin the interview by you telling us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Um, well, I'm, uh, I guess I consider myself an upstate New Yorker. Uh, first, not quite by birth. I was born in uh, Newburgh, New York, but uh, pretty much grew up in Rochester, New York. Um, and uh, attended my you know, childhood and teen years, uh, attended Catholic schools and, and then went away to college for a little bit at uh, Notre Dame, brief stint. But my undergraduate education uh, was mostly at the University of Rochester, to where I grew up. And there I was very fortunate to have uh, learned from the person I considered to be the greatest American historian of the 20th century, Christopher Lash, uh, the kind of profound influence on, uh, on me and inspired me to go to grad school. I uh, attended Yale University in their American Studies program there, uh, which again was a very uh, kind of uh, eye-opening and enriching experience. And uh, then uh, worked uh, at various uh, universities over the next uh, few years uh, after graduation uh, until I finally arrived at Christendom College in uh, 2004, and I've been there uh, ever since. Uh, my uh, my field. Uh, I guess then, uh, as now, was primarily uh, American intellectual history. So this book is in some ways a bit of a departure, though uh, also a bit of a kind of a reflection of that. But my work uh, in graduate school and since then has been largely in, in 
American intellectual history, particularly uh, looking at the rise of the culture concept in uh, American social thought, anthropological idea of culture. And there's one kind of connection to the book, is what I found in, in looking at that, uh, the development of that idea is that uh, secular intellectuals were in the 20th century turning to culture for very much as a kind of a substitute for religion, uh, uh, substitute for kind of religious notions of tradition, uh, something that could provide unity that, that modernity didn't seem to be able uh, do, to do and then in these books. Uh, the first book, Conspicuous Criticism, and the second book, What Might Say for Differences, I kind of show how this modern secular attempt to provide a kind of alternative uh, to religion really kind of failed in its own terms, and that intellectually, um, you know, modernity has not, in a sense, been able to hold it t together. And uh, that's been kind of my main, uh, my main uh, scholarly work before uh, this book here. Oh, excellent, excellent. Is there any particular reason you were drawn to that question? Um, well, I guess uh, partly from, I, I guess we could say, maybe my own, uh, my own faith uh, as a Catholic, trying to make sense of uh, modernity, and uh, reading, again, largely under the, the mentorship of Christopher Lash, reading a lot of secular intellectuals that really saw uh, uh, the kind of the consequences of the assets of modernity and saw how all the things that had once held people together seemed to be uh, pulling them apart. And, uh, you know, I experienced that some way in my own uh, kind of growing up. Uh, and while I was really drawn to these thinkers' analysis of this problem, it seemed like they were always coming up short in some way. And I was trying to figure out why that was. Uh, and the key piece to the puzzle, um, for me at least, was uh, coming across the work of the philosopher Alistair McIntyre, who uh, is probably best known for his book After Virtue, uh, kind of a study of the, uh, the decline in moral philosophy. And he, again, was uh, seeing many similar things and drawing on a lot of secular uh, thinkers. But in his analysis of the secular thinkers, he um, really uh, kind of showed how their, their own assumptions, uh, particularly about uh, autonomy and independence, made this unity that they were searching for and coherence kind of impossible. And when I read him first as an undergraduate, I was surprised that you know he's making this criticism that in some ways a lot of secular uh, thinkers had made, but he was drawing on figures like Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas. And it's like, oh, Jesus, this sounds kind of Catholic. What's he doing here? And, this. and uh, then as I read more in his work, and actually his own work became more Catholic, I thought, wow, um, my Catholicism isn't just my, my personal belief or something, but it could actually help to inform my work. And that's you know, that was the real, you know, after Christopher Lash, it was uh, reading Alistair McIntyre, that was the real eye-opener. And so uh, I drew on McIntyre to kind of get a clear understanding of this uh, this idea of culture and, you know, saw some of the things, again, that he had seen in looking at moral philosophy. But that was the, the first point at which I uh, realized, again, that uh, my, my, my faith could actually inform my work in a way that, you know, wasn't uh, distorting the past or just kind of, you know, imposing my, my beliefs on material, but really uh, the the intellectual traditions of my faith could give me actually a better understanding of modernity, secular modernity, than, than secular intellectual traditions on their own. Right, and that's one thing that 
made to me this book so uh, interesting. Usually in this New Books Network, we're looking at books, uh, New Books in Christian Studies, we're looking at books um, about Christians. And it's not always clear what religious perspective the author is taking. In, in a sense, in secular academia, we're not really supposed to uh, maybe reveal that. But what made this book so interesting to me, and one reason I, I'm glad you were able to make time to interview with us, is the book you're working on, or The Past is Pilgrimage, is a book about being a, a Catholic Christian um, yeah. historian. So I wonder then if you could could tell us how what you were just talking about, this kind of um, personal journey of reading McIntyre, yeah. how that connects to um, the past is pilgrimage. Yeah. Well, there's, I guess, there, there's one more intermediary oh, step. Oh, sure. When, uh, yeah, I mean, before that, because I, I mean, I had, um, you know, through my undergraduate and graduate years, had made these connections with uh, with McIntyre, and in my my first book, uh, I kind of wait, put my cards on the table. Uh, but you know, I'm dumb, but I'm not stupid. I, I didn't. That wasn't my first uh, thought. Like I'm gonna, you know, go tell everyone I'm a Catholic. But actually, in the a very kind of difficult difficult editorial process with Johns Hopkins, they couldn't understand what I was getting at when I was just doing the analysis, so they said, tell us where you're coming from. Ah. And and so, well, okay, <laughs> I've got nothing to lose now, and so I did, and actually, my, the, the secular editors there said, hmm, that's really interesting. I may not agree with it, but yes, that makes sense. You know, we'll publish you. Oh, excellent. And uh, and so it's like, okay, well, I overcame one hurdle. And then uh, a couple of years after uh, I had uh, published my first book, I was working at the University of Notre Dame. And this was about the time when George Marsden's book had come out, The Outrageous Idea of Christian Scholarship. So, okay, like, oh, wow, okay, here's some people that are talking about something that I thought I was the only one talking about. And uh, so again, you know, people primarily working in uh, in the field of religious history, so writing the kind of books that maybe you, you know, that you deal with in this program, like as you said, you know, books about religious figures, but not particularly from a religious perspective. And so I uh, observed and to some degree participated in that um, debate at Notre Dame uh, in the late 90s and early uh, 2000s, and uh, felt that the debate kept kind of coming up short. You know, that there was a lot of talk about, you know, sympathy for past historical actors. Well, any historian should have that. You know, willingness and openness to understand them on their own terms, fine. Uh, but when it came to, like, well, what's Christian about that? It, it always seemed to, you know, top off at, well, um, we have a sympathetic understanding, you know, from an insider perspective. It's like, oh, okay, that's good, but. You know, is that Christian? Are you really telling a Christian story, or are you simply telling a story, very sympathetically, about Christians? And uh, that's really, I think, uh, what kind of drove me uh, to eventually to write this book with, uh, with Chris Bloom, uh, trying to, in many ways, uh, answer that question, what would a Christian story look like, as opposed to simply a story about Christians? Oh, and I think that came out through very well through your book. Could you could you tell us then how you and um, Dr. Bloom came together to, to write this yeah. text? Then, okay. well, and that that is really uh, where Kristen comes in. Uh, Kristen then brought us together. Uh, he was a uh, Kristen was then uh, working at Kristen as uh, a history professor, chair of the history department. He, he's now at the Augustine Institute out in uh, Colorado. Uh, but I was uh, looking for a job and. Um, 
and I interviewed with him, and he was kind of, um, for both of us, there was this, you know, great moment where like, oh, another historian who has read Alistair McIntyre <laughs> is actually trying to do history, you know, uh, in a McIntyrean way. So I think we were both looking for that, and uh, um, when we finally found each other, and so I started working with him there, and we... Um, would talk about these things, but really in, in terms of how this book came to be the kind of book uh, that it is, um, it really came out of our discussions uh, about uh, discussions of our teaching, you know, uh, rather than, you know, epistemological or theoretical arguments, like how are we going to tell, uh, in our case, a Catholic story to our students, as opposed to just doing, you know, a Western Civ sequence that you know, maybe highlights the, the actions of Catholics more than a Western sequence that is at a secular school. So it's really uh, kind of hammering these things out in the classroom and trying to think about how we, how we can teach the core better. I mentioned <laughs> before we started here that I just spent the whole morning teaching core. And, um, you know, it can be, uh, it can be grueling, but it's, it's essential. Uh, remember, just a little connection to McIntyre here, when, in, his, in his later years at Notre Dame, he refused to teach upper division classes, oh. but, but would only teach freshmen. <laughs> uh, and, I mean, there's lots of reasons for that, but one is that he really thinks that those, uh, those base, those so-called introductory classes, they're the most important. I mean, uh, you know, in most institutions today, the big survey classes get, you know, passed off on uh, beginning assistant professors when really it's the senior people that should be teaching those, the people that have done this for 20 years and have kind of accumulated a, a wisdom as opposed to just simply a knowledge about the past. They're the ones that should be teaching freshmen. Right. And that's, that's one of the, you know, I think the points that Chris and I try to make in this is the distinction between wisdom and knowledge and that, you know, we have more information more, uh, about more knowledge about history than ever before. It gets you know, produced at an industrial rate, uh, but very little wisdom. Uh, and if anything, there's almost like an in, inverse proportion between our knowledge and our wisdom. And uh, that's something we're trying to call attention to and to kind of offer a, a corrective to in the book. Excellent, excellent. Well, that, yeah, I'm definitely sympathetic with a lot of the points you raised, and I'm hoping that some of our listeners who um, are dealing with those same issues will go ahead and pick the book up. Yeah. So I wonder then if you could, so that, that kind of explains the genesis of the book and what you're trying to do. Could you walk us through the, the introduction of the past as pilgrimage? Okay, sure. Um, well, the, uh, the introduction uh, is, is titled Stories to Uphold the Good. And what Chris and I were trying to do here at the beginning is first you know, introduce the concept of history as story. Um, which is maybe you know, not totally unfamiliar to people, but to, to, I guess, be a little more specific in how we, we approach story. I mean, it's, it's a common complaint uh, today that, well, history's become too analytic and we've lost the ability to tell a good story. But this is more about, this is about more than just telling a good story. Um, it's about the role of kind of narrative in really um, shaping a community and shaping the historical memory and knowledge of a, of a community. Uh, that's not something that academic history does very well, so in the introduction, to just kind of shake things up a bit, you know, to make it clear to people that we're not just calling for academic historians to write better narratives. Uh, we look at, we, we try to um, well, you know, first say, look, academic history is a very recent way of, of writing history in a very you know, particular 
the past, some other types of writing and some other contexts for uh, telling the story of the past. And so we give uh, two, uh, two kind of case studies or examples um, of quote-unquote history that, of course, you know, no academic would accept as history today, but uh, what we present is not, certainly not academic history, but it very much is a story about the past. And uh, Chris's example, uh, drawing from his uh, his work uh, in uh, French history, is he uh, looks at sermons, particularly 17th century sermons that were given in praise of Louis IX, the great 13th century uh, French king, and a Catholic saint. And so he, he talks about the way in which these sermons, these you know, sermons on the on the life of the, of the great French saint, were ways of connecting people to their past, the French people to their past. Uh, and that is, um, they, they are in that sense historical, and, you know, historical in a way that's not, you know, tied solely to facts, but again, to, to memory, to connecting past to present uh, in a living way. And then my example, actually kind of going back uh, even further into the, uh, the tradition, I look at uh, uh, the early, the accounts of the early Christian martyrs, uh, particularly uh, Saints, the account of Saints Perpetua and Felicity that we actually teach here in the Christendom in our core uh, class, and look at that as a, a kind of a, a text that, again, connects uh, past and present, uh, but also uh, gives an account of uh, community building and how uh, the, the church is to be understood really as the body of Christ, because the, uh, this uh, passion account, which of course you know presents perpetual and felicity as uh, as heroes, as you know Christ-like in their uh, uh, ability and willingness to suffer along with Christ. Uh, that's all there. That's what we would expect from the account of martyr. But there's also a very powerful account of perpetuating Felicity's place in the Christian community and how part of their agony, uh, really their, their great agony, their greatest agony, is not the physical pain that they're going to endure, but the separation from their community. And, yeah, this was a really, at least certainly for North African Christians in the late uh, antique period, this was the most powerful story about the past that they can imagine. Uh, you know, St. Augustine wrote many sermons on it, and sometimes he would, you know, he'd have to con- uh, restrain the people from just kind of, you know, breaking out into fits of uh, emotional ecstasy and hearing the story. And, you know, that's, there, there's, you know, in, in both of those examples, there's something there in, uh, kind of, in terms of a visceral connection to the past um, that is definitely missing in the history that is written today. Uh, and that's, some of that spirit is what we want to kind of recapture, but we think that, uh, you know, authentically uh, Catholic history really has to recapture. And I, I wonder if you could tell us um, regarding both these, or these three people rather, um, St. Louis um, and Perpetua and Felicity, what was it you were trying to capture? I mean, you mentioned the community and their role in it, but what is it about them that makes them particularly important uh, areas for historical inquiry? Yeah, well, for um, uh, for St. Louis, uh, it is what uh, was going on in the kind of memorialization of St. Louis was, you know, here's, here's what it means to be um, a Catholic Christian king. And it's this kind of a 
model of living in the world uh, that was important to, to everybody uh, uh, in France. I mean, certainly very few people are going to be kings, but a king is an essential uh, part of uh, society, of course, and uh, people needed to know that uh, holy kingship was possible, especially in the 17th century when Chris does a nice job in kind of placing this in the context of a very different kind of king, a rather unsaintly king uh, of Louis uh, the 16th, uh, excuse me, Louis the 14th, uh, and that Louis the Ninth's holiness and sanctity uh, as a king, not as a, as a monk or just somebody cut out from the world, but as a king living in the world you know, fulfilling his worldly functions, that that was a, a kind of a rebuke uh, to the failings, the moral and spiritual failings of Louis the Fourteenth, and uh, you know that's you know kind of a, a, a great example of how how the past uh, has been used in the in Christian tradition. You know, we we look back to the saints to uh, present uh, a model to us, kind of a standard. Uh, by which to judge ourselves. Of course, you know, Christ is the standard, and all saints, you know, their sanctity is measured by Christ, is modeled on Christ, but there are many different ways to be Christ. And um, that's, you know, Louis shows that you actually can be Christ uh, in uh, and be a king, even though you know, Louis the Fourteenth <laughs> would seem to suggest uh, otherwise. Um, now, with perpetual infelicity, I mean, here we took about at least in my approach to them, um, talk about that these, the, the lives of the saints can have different meanings at different times. For the uh, for the original hearers, for say like for Augustine's congregation, when they would hear this, you know, they're they're within living memory most of them of these persecutions, even though Petrus Plus's persecution, you know, was in the early third century, but. Um, there may have been people who, you know, lived through the Diocletian persecutions. Uh, certainly people that lived through uh, the persecutions of the Aryan period. So uh, what's, you know, kind of really special about perpetual infelicity is, you know, their experience and martyrdom, their, uh, their willingness to kind of undergo that suffering that was very real to uh, a lot of people uh, at that time, you know, was within living memory and such. Uh, but the way I presented um, in the introduction, like, you know, raised the issue, like, well, most of us in, in the West, at least, are, are pretty far from that, uh, uh, from that experience. Most of us have not had to uh, endure martyrdom or the threat of it. And so I can, you know, ask, well, so what, what meaning could this story have for us today? And um, if... Say, for example, Louis the Ninth is a kind of a corrective to the uh, um, the failings of Louis the Fourteenth. In this, uh, the way I interpret this uh, this narrative is that uh, it shows how uh, the you know commitment to Christ, putting Christ first, uh, can often be not simply giving your life for Christ, but often uh, turning your back on your own family. Uh, you know, I think. I mean, think of early Christian martyrs, most people are like, oh, well, they refuse to offer sacrifice to the gods. Great for them. That's fine. And most of us can imagine, you know, refusing to offer sacrifice to the pagan gods. But so much of their story focuses on the family consequences of that. It's, it's not so much perpetual felicity against the emperor or some, you know, impersonal Roman official. It's them against their own family, their pagan family. And there's, 
um, um, passages where uh, Perpetua's father is pleading with her, please, please, don't humiliate me. You know, think of think of your child. You know, think of think of your family. You know, think of your child. Both of them had children, and to undergo this martyrdom, they had to uh, give up their children in a sense. Uh, you know, violate mother love or put some kind of love. Uh, before the, the love of the mother for her child. And uh, in a time uh, when I think sometimes the family, you know, among, certainly among faithful Christians, that uh, family has almost become the equal of God in some ways. You know, let's talk of family values. I think it's, it's a kind of a nice corrective uh, to that to remind us that, uh, yes, family is good, but there is a higher good, and that uh, our, our love for Christ can often uh, force us to uh, kind of leave our family behind in the name of a higher love. Right. This is something I often deal with. My research is on um, Korean martyrs in the, the late oh, yeah. 1700s and into the 1800s. And yeah, yeah family was a, a huge, huge issue. Yeah, yeah. And that's we, you know, I think we kind of, especially if, you, if you're just dealing with a more recent West or something, uh, forget how much, like, the conflict was between family and church. Right. And really, in some ways, like the way I teach the, the survey, as I stress that, you know, you know, we maybe call it a conflict between church and state, but the conflict is between dynastic families, you know, who have their land and want to preserve their name and all that, against the church that thinks that it has more authority than they do. And, uh, uh, yeah, and I think I would imagine certainly when, uh, if you're looking at uh, non-Western countries where... Christianity is first coming in. That's, I think, the thing that probably strikes them as strange. Is what? You mean there's something more than the family, or that, that this religious belief, whatever this this thing is that you're you know, telling me, you're saying that that might come between me and my family? Um, where even the, you know, the the pagan Romans, of course, always um, uh, whatever gods they worshipped or something, it was all. The idea, the idea that you know, worshiping a god could somehow um, come between you and your family was for a pagan, you know, inconceivable. Which is why, in the account, you know, Perpetua's father is just pulling his hair out, like, "How could you know, this isn't a, this, this isn't a choice you have to make," you know, and stuff. So, yeah, I imagine that would be very powerful in, uh, in Korean Catholic history. And I think it's uh, this this introduction. I maybe should have mentioned this when I introduced it. Is really um, is ex has an excellent title. It's a stories to uphold the good. Yeah. Um, and it sounds to me like that that really fits in with the content. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and again, you know, Louis, certainly Louis the Ninth and Perpetua and Felicity are two kind of living examples of the good. Um, and so, yeah, I'm sorry, I forgot that that, that key uh, key component to it. It's not just story. It's not just a certain kind of story about certain kind of people, but it is stories uh, really directed to the good. These are supposed to be, you know, edifying. Uh, they're supposed to give people models on how to live. And, you know, certainly uh, those of us who have gone through, you know, the academic uh, mill here uh, are right to be a little aware that we don't, uh, you know, we're, we're invoking these examples, we're not calling for a kind of a, a simple-minded hagiography. Uh, but still, uh, in the end, um, the stories we tell about the past should in some way uphold 
uphold the good. I mean, that, that should be the kind of the purpose of it. Even if along the way, you know, you you confront uh, and analyze and uh, uh, engage all of the kind of the evil that is certainly uh, present in the past. Right. So I wonder then. So we've we've established um, then this you know one of the most important things about history is to to uphold the good in a sense through these stories. I wonder then if we could move to chapter one, uh, which is entitled Catholicism and that that noble dream. And that noble dream is in in quotation marks for our listeners. Yeah, and this is in, in many ways uh, the the first uh, uh, our first attempt to answer the objections that people especially a story, you know, professional historians might reasonably have to the introduction of stories to the, of all the good you just want, you know, hagiography or um, just uh, some kind of fluff or something that, you know, passes over the uh, all, all the evil uh, in history. Uh, you're turning your back on uh, the tremendous advances made in the, the empirical study of the past. Uh, and, you know, our uh, answer to that charge is no, we're not. Uh, but in order to make that charge successfully, we have to kind of establish our relation to that, you know, professional academic history that has been the authoritative history for the last 150 years or so. And so uh, that's what we do in the first chapter. And the, the, that noble dream that is in a quotation marks is a reference to two things. First, uh, Peter Novick's uh, very influential book, That Noble Dream, I think the subtitle is The Objectivity Question in, in the American uh, Historical Profession. It's a very, kind of very uh, influential book uh, came out of the 90s, a lot of uh, late 80s, early 90s, a lot of discussion about objectivity. And uh, that noble dream is the noble dream of objectivity, that, that historians could approach the past something in the way that a physicist approaches the natural world. Uh, the second reference to that that is um, uh, Novick's own reference point was that that's the title of, a, of an address uh, given by Charles Beard, the great American historian Charles Beard, to the American Historical Association, where he was dealing with this issue. And one of the great things about Novick's book is that, you know, written in the late 80s and 90s in the time of kind of postmodernism and stuff, is that, uh, he shows that a, a lot of the um, uh, con concerns and issues about objectivity that go under the name postmodernism, they were present really at the beginning of the historical profession. Uh, so in this chapter, I want to in some ways go over some of that uh, uh, no big material, but from the perspective of Catholicism, or just you know, trying to place Catholicism uh, in this, uh, this whole historical development of objectivity in the profession. And um, to do that, I do uh, a couple of things. First, uh, this is in some ways following Novick, show that, um, you know, professional history, academic history, was never objective in that, uh, in that strong sense, in the kind of we-are-like-physics sense. Uh, now, most historians can uh, accept that, and in all the more recent debates, everyone says, well, of course, of course we're not physics. But what, um, what historians are a little less willing to accept and acknowledge is that professional academic history is not simply not like physics, but... Uh, completely apart from the, the issue of objectivity, what it does is tell a story. 
that it is structured by a narrative, and then the issue is not so much objectivity or, or not, but narrative or not. And for all of its approximations of scientific objectivity, it has never been able to escape narrative. And what's very clear from reading any 19th century history, even early 20th century history, is that the narrative for most of these uh, professional historians is the rise of a nation state. Uh, that's the story. That's the big story. Uh, and, and that's it's in some ways the story that you know Chris and I are trying to uh, offer an alternative to. Uh, but how do you shoehorn Catholicism into this um, into this the development of history? Uh, is is there really any kind of conversation going on? And you know, looking a little more closely in ways that another didn't, I see that the story of you know this kind of master story, if you will, of the 19th century history, the rise of the nation state, actually was directly targeted at another than the Catholic Church. Right. So, you know, the father of modern history, Leopold von Ranke, uh, everybody, you know, kind of knows him, knows he's the one who kind of set the standard uh, for the new objectivity and such. Uh, but what is, you know, less known, or at least kind of less acknowledged, that his, his, his first histories, uh, histories of, kind of northern Italy and such, and the conflicts between kind of, you know, Germany and uh, the Italian city-states and such were really part of his effort to tell the story of the rise of the nation-state from out from underneath the church. But that, for him, is the kind of the grand story of history. You know, it's not everybody knows kind of the rise of the nation-state, but again, what's often not acknowledged as much is that this is a function of its triumph over the church. The church was the great kind of international institution in the Middle Ages, and while it was strong, kingdoms were always going to be somewhat weakened. But uh, the rise of strong kingdoms and absolute monarchies, and then eventually uh, the nation-state, come at the expense of the church. So the rise of the nation-state is the decline of specifically the Catholic Church. And beyond this general phenomenon, Ronk devoted much of his scholarly life to writing uh, a history of the papacy, which again I think is not very well known, and you know that kind of fits into his master narrative, of course, of the rise of the nation state, uh, and also certainly uh, fans the flames, if you will, of a certain kind of uh, anti-Catholicism that was uh, fairly common among um, secular intellectuals in the 19th century. So, in, in presenting this case. In this kind of history, what Chris and I are trying to do is say, uh, we'll level the playing field, if you will. Okay, you know, we're talking about narrative here, uh, Catholic narrative. Narrative is inescapable, and look, here is the narrative, kind of the dominant narrative of uh, that those first generations of objective history. Um, so, okay, there you have you have that on the table, and now. Um, uh, the question is, you know, how does Catholicism uh, relate to this? And, you know, our, the, kind of the short answer from this chapter is that um, though the Church has a different narrative to tell, uh, in which, um, you know, the rise of the nation-state at the expense of the Church is not necessarily a good thing for many reasons, uh, still, we can... Uh, you know, Catholics or really, you know, any Christian, any person of faith uh, can make use of these new techniques, the, you know, empirical, scholarly uh, archives. 
archival techniques, uh, make use of those techniques, but kind of place those techniques in the service of a different story. Well, excellent, excellent. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense um, to me, right, to call it and say, well, you know, this is why I tell my students, I say, you know, it's impossible for me to be completely objective. And so I say, you know, this is when I do things that I feel that I'm particularly unobjective about, I tell them yeah. ahead of time. Yeah, yeah. And I say, you know, just, just so you understand this. Um, so, so, right, so there is this, um, in a supposedly objective history, there are, there is, in a sense, uh, still a story, and that story is being told along with its own values. So can you yeah. tell us a little more, how did Catholics connect to this, especially with this idea of faithless histories? Austrian 
uh, scholar that he the Pope Leo kind of commissioned to write uh, to write a history of the popes that could be kind of an answer to to Ronca's uh, history. And so, in this first uh, kind of generation, if you will, of this new kind of history, uh, the Church is actually at the center of it, given you know for reasons that I've just mentioned. And the Church responds in a positive way, not by hunkering down or hiding, but really trying to engage uh, this new intellectual discipline on its own terms, but still, uh, you know, from within the traditions of the Church. Oh, excellent, excellent. And how do, um, so there are Catholics who are trying to, to do this, and who are, like you said, trying to do it from the traditions of the church. What happens in the United States? Yeah, um, that's uh, a, a little bit of the same and, and, and a little bit of the different, uh, a little bit different. Um, certainly, uh, Catholic scholars in the United States uh, are observing these developments in, uh, in Europe. And in, in some ways, kind of trying to follow the lead of, uh, of you know, Leo and, uh, and other Catholic scholars in Europe in making the most of these new uh, scholarly techniques. Uh, but the American situation is a little different. Uh, in Europe, uh, late 19th century Europe, uh, the, the Church is engaged in a real war with uh, many of uh, the nation states at the time, particularly uh, France, Third Republic France. Faithful to the Pope, faithful to the Church, and all that, 
also wanted to be faithful to America and really almost at times argue that Catholics are the real Americans because we believe in religious freedom more than anyone else and religious freedom is what uh, America is all about. Uh, and, you know, that in the late 19th century that maybe wasn't too problematic, but that did kind of sow the seeds for some, some problems later where uh, you could say nationalism or being American and being Catholic would uh, come into a kind of more direct um, confrontation with each other. Right. right. So, so chapter one, it feels like you've kind of, um, you and Dr. Bloom have managed to, you've kind of identified an issue, a problem that Catholics have to deal with. And in chapter two, the historian's craft and the Catholic tradition, it seems like, um, at least as I understood, this is where you're kind of giving your solution. Yeah, the um, chapter chapter one is a little more, you know, critical, negative, like kind of here's here's the problem, uh, and uh, you know, academic history is something that we must work through. You know, we can't pretend it never happened. We can learn from it, but if if we're going to do something more than just uh, say, you know, a history of Catholics, uh, if we're going to do a Catholic history rather than just a history of Catholics, then we need to look back to the tradition, uh, earlier parts of the tradition, before there was, uh, you know, a, a, an academic historical profession, uh, because that's when you had uh, kind of a, a Catholic history that was uh, clearly uh, and robustly uh, unapologetically Catholic. And so here... Um, I think most of uh, Chapter 2 is, is uh, more the work of uh, Chris Bloom, uh, doing working with material that he's more familiar with. He holds up uh, kind of two Catholic historians, that neither of whom would be you know, certainly recognized as historians by today's academic profession, uh, but he looks back to the 17th century French uh, writer Jacques-Denis Bossuet, uh, uh, perhaps in this context best known for his discourse on universal history, uh, and then uh, the writings of, I think I'm uh, better known, uh, Colonel John Henry Newman, uh, blessed John Henry Newman, uh, and particularly his work on the Church of the Fathers, and he uses these both as kind of models for, uh, for history writing and uh, history storytelling, again, this, this, this theme of narrative and story that uh, returns again and again in the work. And um, these two figures kind of address different uh, issues of, of structure and writing. Uh, in Bossuet, uh, we get uh, the, the big picture. I mean, it's discourse on universal history. It is kind of a history of the world from creation to his own time, which, you know, again, very uh, ambitious, shall we say. Uh, and again, Chris isn't holding this up. There's something that you know, we, we shouldn't all write directly exactly like Bossuet today. But what he draws from Bossuet is that before you can write about anything, uh, you, you really do need the big picture. Um, you know, where did we come from? Where are we going? Uh, and so, again, you know, most um, secular historians today would say, well, you know, you you know, that's just simply imposing uh, faith on history. The fact is that most secular historians 
have that kind of big picture. Uh, for for most of them, their their moment of creation is not drawn from the Book of Genesis, but maybe from uh, the Book of Locke or something. You know, it's, it's kind of the Enlightenment or maybe the Renaissance, you know, this birth of modernity, this you know master story that is still going on today, uh, and the you know kind of case study that they're going to give in their in their monograph is going to be again really just another episode in that in that big story. We all bring big stories uh, to history. There's, there's no history, or practically no history, that could have that could be written without at least some implicit uh, master story. And so, uh, Chris looks to the work of Basway to remind Catholics of what uh, what their master story is. Uh, but you know, history can't always be at that that high level of kind of big picture universal history. And so, for uh, kind of a more you know up close and personal uh, example of what uh, how you would tell a story within uh, that big uh, picture, he again cites Newman's um, Church of the Fathers, particularly uh, Newman's account of the um, uh, the really tragic story of the relation between two saints, uh, Basil of Caesarea and Gregory Nazianzen, and uh, there in his account, which you know is pretty much just his account of Newman's account, uh, you really get a sense of how uh, you know, Christian history has you know, rich material for tragedy. And, you know, telling a story, telling a dramatic story that upholds the good is not simply you know, whitewashing the past or anything. These are, these are two saints that were uh, you know, at times at each other's throats, eventually do reconcile, but um, you know, all of the, the highs and lows and um, uh, you know, tragic happenings that we associate with with great grand history. You know, these these are all there uh, within uh, Christian history itself, and in the hands of a of a great writer and thinker like Newman. Uh, you know, they can be rendered uh, in a way that, that tells the story of the faith. Oh, excellent, excellent. So, um, no, that makes a lot of sense. So again, it's just this kind of idea of telling stories from a Catholic perspective. Um, and that, that to me seems like, um, I'm, maybe I misread it to me. That seems like the first half of the chapter. I wonder, um, if I, if it's okay, I wanted to read a quote from the chapter Okay. on uh, page 91. Um, there's the quote, when the historian's labor has been specified as the exercise of right judgment upon the data of the past for the sake of the formation of the virtue of right judgment in his audience, the dependence of the historian's craft upon the science of ethics is clear. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if you could comment a, a little bit about that to, for our listeners. Yeah. Um, that, uh, basically, if you're, you know, judgment, there's different kinds of judgment. Certainly, one, what the kind of judgment historians are, are used to making is like judging uh, matters of causality relative causality. Well, you know, how can how did this event happen? Like, you know, what's the cause of World War One? Well, there's a lot of factors and you know, in the end, in weighing different factors you have to come to come to some kind of judgment. Uh, and all that's well and good, but what uh, Chris is trying to do here in, in that passage you just read is like, you know, the, ultimately the, the real judgment that the judgment that should be of most concern uh, to the Catholic historian is is the judgment of the good, 
the judgment of right conduct uh, that we want to discern in the past and present to our audience today. And how can you know what is right conduct if you uh, don't really have a sense of ethics? And uh, uh, by ethics here, Chris is really uh, referring to pretty much Aristotelian Thomistic ethics that to, in order to you know to judge the uh, the actions of past behavior, uh, the behavior of past historical actors, you know, you need to be able to make you know rational uh, ethical uh, distinctions and judgments, and that only comes through studying ethics, the, you know, philosophical and theological ethics, and that's something that is certainly sorely lacking in uh, in secular history. Not to say that I mean, judgment is not lacking. For all of the pretensions of objectivity, um, it is impossible to pick up a, a history book without, you know, even an academic history book without seeing very strong moral judgments being made. I mean, think of any account of slavery. You know, people uh, they're like, well, I just just the facts here. You know, I don't want to cloud it with any judgments or anything. You know, these so many secular history books are written with a real moral passion, a sense of uh, right and wrong, and that, that history can be used to um, correct the wrong in the service of the right. Uh, but so much of what is asserted as right and correct and proper is simply just asserted. And to, you know, to go back to some, some of McIntyre's categories, it's uh, the reflection of uh, really that kind of uh, emotivist sensibility. You know, this is wrong. This is an outrage. And so I'm going to, you know, uh, indict these evildoers for, for the wrong they're doing. But um, so often this sense of right and wrong is, is not very uh, deeply articulated. It is just a kind of a, an assertion, uh, largely an assertion of the common sense of today uh, against uh, what is seen as the... Uh, you know, the benighted sensibility of the past. Um, and, you know, in, in calling for judgment, I think, you know, Chris realizes that, well, that's, uh, you know, we're, we're skirting in dangerous territory here. You don't want um, history to kind of descend to the level of just a moral diatribe or something or a finger wagging or something. But if you're, uh, if, in this case, like, if, if judgment is unavoidable, and I think, you know, any look at secular history books show that it is unavoidable. There's judgments being made everywhere. If it's unavoidable, then it needs to be done correctly. And if it needs, if it's going to be done correctly, you need education in the science of ethics. And if you're going to reject that, then what we have, then you know, historical judgment just comes down to assertion of my moral preferences. Uh, and he's trying to, uh, we're both trying to kind of raise uh, the level of judgment uh, above that. So sadly, that's pretty much what uh, the level at which historical judgment is today. Right. Right. So then, so established here that a, a good um, or a, a Catholic historiography should be taking into account stories that uphold the good. They're told dramatically and help the, the audience to, um, to live the good, to make right decisions. And right. chapter three, um, I'm sorry. No, I, I didn't say that. Oh, okay. Oh, I'm sorry. And then in chapter three, saints, sinners, and scholars, you pick up 
with uh, Eamon Duffy, who I guess is a it seems is an exemplar of this approach. Uh, yeah, uh, and and the well, uh, I, I'd say you know, to be fair, what and this is the chapter that I worked on more that um, what he's primarily an exemplar of is somebody who has I would say successfully synthesized um, you know the, the modern kind of historical techniques, the tools of the secular profession, and uh, an authentically uh, Catholic perspective, you know, kind of coming out of Catholic narrative and really holding that um, uh, as normative for kind of for judging history. Uh, so in, um, in, in that sense, yes, he's an exemplar uh, of that, you know, particularly, um, I think, in uh, his, his ability to kind of place uh, primarily Reformation historian to put Reformation history in uh, in a big picture context. You could say like as Busway uh, would have us do, uh, and then also um, the ability to tell kind of dramatic narratives, really kind of tragic narratives uh, of people caught in uh, very very difficult situations. I think of the end of his great work, The Tripping of the Altars, where he tells the story of the of some. Um, priest who lived through all of the changes uh, in the, the mid-16th century England. Um, and, you know, it's like, well, for now, now, now we're Protestant, now we're Catholic, now we're Protestant again, things like that. Uh, and told kind of very, very sympathetically um, with a sensitivity to the moral reasoning, ethical reasoning that this, uh, this priest engaged in, in always switching back and forth, how uh, he was driven. He wasn't driven simply by uh, kind of expediency and wanting to save his neck, uh, but ultimately um, driven by his desire to serve his flock. And that's the, uh, uh, the for, for Duffy the kind of um, the great uh, historical lesson uh, or, or significance of 16th century. Uh, English religious history is, he says, it's, it wasn't so much the triumph of a theology, uh, though eventually English people will kind of come to accept the new theology as their own, but ultimately he sees it as a kind of a triumph of local community. That's what people didn't want to give up, uh, and they were willing to ultimately kind of go along with whatever uh, religion or kind of church that the, uh, the powers that be um, wanted them to, but it wasn't, again, you know, through, through craven motivations or anything, but through, through very good ones. Uh, and that, you know, in terms of dramatic narrative, I think that's, you know, you really you get the sense of this, this history as a tragedy. Um, because from Duffy's Catholic perspective, you know, now from, again, from a, from a non-Catholic perspective, this can just be the story of progress. Uh, from a certain Catholic perspective, this can be just simply the story of decline. Oh, they apostatized those, those those heretics, they deserve what they get. But for, in Duffy's dramatic narrative, it is a tragedy because it's a conflict between two goods, which is, like, to me, really the, like, the essence of tragedy. It's the good of fidelity to the church and the good of fidelity to your community, your local community. And the tragedy of that period is that you couldn't have both in England. Right. Yeah, excellent. I, I, that's that was my sense. As I, I got this chapter, I think that that came through very well. 
here was this this sense of tragedy in that um I, being a writing history from a catholic perspective isn't simply just um like you said it's not just a story of well these were the good guys these were the bad guys who apostatized it there is this sense of human moral frailty and of the difficult choices human beings living in history sometimes have to make yeah yeah, yeah. so I, re- I i certainly appreciated that okay and um in chapter four you're you're moving to someone right that's that's not a professional historian uh Pope yeah. Benedict the 16th <laughs> so another a job. Professor. job yeah <laughs> um i wonder i thought this was really creative to to look at how a pope is um talking about uh hagiography yeah yeah and that's um chapter four is uh that's, that's more of chris's work but he does you know i think uh very provocatively, but you know, this is how we structured it. After you know, spending a chapter showing, hey, here's how a you know a, a, a real kind of a credentialized professional historian can do it. Uh, then we say, well, and here's how somebody who's not a credentialized historian can do it too. You know, again, you don't you don't have to be uh, credentialized in order to do this this Catholic history, but you do have to be very learned. And so I think uh, Joseph Rosinger book Benedict, uh, he kind of fulfills that
excellent right i this was i really enjoyed this chapter and like i say it, it was a surprise <laughs> <laughs> yep. so i i wonder then if you could then uh we've gone through the the introduction the four chapters of the book i wonder if you could bring us then through the conclusion uh, yeah, this, uh, the the conclusion is uh, pretty much kind of the way forward, uh, if you will, and a kind of a maybe a you know a restatement of our general principles. Uh, and uh, but then offering also uh, uh, some kind of analogous models, if you will, that building a bit on. Uh, particularly Chris's chapter on uh, Benedict and his emphasis on the saints, kind of pr- propose in many ways uh, the saint's life as a way to start as kind of a model or a genre for this new Catholic history. Uh, but, you know, saint's life that is not going to simply be hagiography, uh, that's going to be uh, something like Benedict's very, very short uh, saint's lives, although, you know, Chris acknowledges, like, well, as historians, you know, we, we, we need to work in a bit more of a, a longer format, if you will. But it'll be, you know, take Benedict's uh, seeing the face of Christ in history type of model, uh, seeing it through the saints, and beefing that up a bit with a kind of a history that's, you know, a little more, that reflects a little more uh, of, um, you know, kind of modern scholarship and such. And in you know, kind of looking around for uh, a model for that, I went, you know, went back to my old orals list and uh, that I've taught a couple of times in classes and really found... Um, uh, Edmund Morgan's uh, uh, Puritan Dilemma, his biography, very short biography of uh, John Winthrop, as a kind of narrative model in, in this way. First, Edmund Morgan, you know, his history doesn't get any better than Edmund Morgan. Like American history doesn't get any better in terms of you know the sophistication of the thought and the uh, the beauty of his writing. So, you know, looking in terms of genre and form and style, you know, Edmund Morgan's about as good as it gets. His biography of Winthrop was done for a, a more kind of popular series or kind of you know short books that could be used in class and that might get a general audience, not you know 500-page biographies or something or anything like that. Uh, and it's a beautifully written, uh, very tightly compact book, but it was accepted as you know real scholarship by uh, by the academic community. Again, it's on those people's oral list. But in, in when I was rereading it and, and using it to teach in class.
you know, relates to its material in something like that. I, I actually hope in a little more sophisticated way than Morgan, because uh, we would like to be writing not just for our times, but for all times, and hope that uh, these, these type of saints' lives could could stand the test of time and not just be seen as kind of a saint's life for, you know, the early 21st century or something. I mean, to some degree, that's unavoidable. Every every work is a work of its time. Uh, but some works, again, do last beyond their time, and we would um, are, are kind of uh, call to arms, if you will, for uh, for Catholic historians just to, just to start thinking about how to write uh, to write a history, particularly kind of a saint's life, that might stand the test of time, that is not going to be simply, you know, thrown in the ash heap after a generation, or maybe consigned to uh, uh, an oral list. Oh, well, you know, this is how they used to write about it. You know, you should uh, you, know, you should take a look at that. But, you know, so, you know, so much of the history that is written in academia is it's written to be revised, you know, and to be discarded. And that's just not a, a very rewarding intellectual activity in the end. <laughs> you know that you're, you know, what you're writing is kind of, it's designed to be obsolete. You know, there's planned obsolescence in writing. Uh, you know, again, that's that's kind of uh, dispiriting and disheartening and makes one wonder, well, why should I do such a thing other than, you know, professional advancement or something? But uh, we, you know, looking back to Newman and Busway and, and some of the other, you know, the figures that we've dealt with in the book, we would like to, uh, again, you know, inspire a new generation of Catholic historians to um, uh, can, to take up our call to do a history that is, uh, you know, fully in tune with uh, contemporary methods and techniques, but also kind of from within the heart uh, of the church. We think uh, we think that that's uh, very possible, and uh, just can hope that there's other people out out there uh, that are willing. I found it uh, certainly very inspiring, and I hope that our, our listeners will, too. Well, uh, thank you, Frank. I'm glad that you did it, and I certainly hope as well that uh, there's others out there uh, who this strikes a chord with. Well, I, I think there will be. Well, now, we've, we've taken up a, a lot of your time, so I'd like to end by asking the traditional New Books Network question. What are you working on now? Okay. Uh, well, as a matter of fact, I am. It's... Uh, uh, I'm trying to figure out if it's really responding to the call that uh, Chris and I have just given, but <laughs> I think it is actually. Uh, it's a it's a, uh, a study of four Catholic thinkers: um, the uh, Romano Guardini, Henri de Lubac, Jean Benvenu, and Jacques Maritain. Four kind of early to mid-century Catholic thinkers that uh, were really, in many ways, the kind of in, uh, inspiration and architect for Vatican II. Um, and, and offered, uh, I think, a, a distinctively Catholic path through modernity. The, the, the name of the, the tentative title of the book is The Salvation of the Nations, uh, Catholic Modernity in an Age of Confessional Liberalism. So I think some of those words you can uh, maybe get the connection to uh, the fastest pilgrimage that uh, I'm trying to put these thinkers in a broader intellectual context, not just church thinkers, but
unique spiritual worldview and a set of non-negotiable faith commitments and such uh, that have largely dominated or determined public life in the West. And the way I want to present these thinkers is to show them not only is you know, Catholic thinkers dealing with problems specific to Catholicism in, uh, in the half century leading up to Vatican II, but also see them as thinkers who tried to stake a claim for Catholicism in public life. But that's, you know, uh, for them, you know, their, their agenda was not simply to reform the Church, but they had the agenda, which all Christians should have, to reform the world, to bring the world to Christ. Uh, Vatican II was about speaking to the world, bringing Christ to the world, and that's, I think, something that's strangely often been lost, that uh, uh, you know, Catholics, you know, liberal versus conservative Catholics, are still fighting amongst themselves over what direction the Church should take, and Christ has kind of got lost in that, that's <laughs> uh, you know, forgotten that what the Council calls us to do is to bring Christ to the world, not to advance a liberal or conservative agenda, and that's what uh, I see in these thinkers, uh, a you know, kind of aspect of their thought that has, uh, that has kind of got lost, and so in doing a history of these four great Catholic thinkers, uh, I want, you know, I in a sense want to use the history to bring Christ to the world. I mean, these, anyone you know, reading uh, the lives and the thought of these thinkers is... You know, you're seeing something at the face of Christ. None of them are canonized saints, uh, uh, but at least in terms of intellectuals, they're about as saintly as you can get uh, in the 20th century. And so, uh, in writing this book, I want to both address, uh, you know, a real problem that is of concern to anyone uh, who's interested in 20th century thought. That is, you know, what is the nature of modernity, uh, and look at that through these thinkers. But then also at the same time, do something that is, I'd say, distinctly Catholic, that is, uh, bring the face of Christ to the world through these very holy and, and brilliant men who tried to do that during their lives. That sounds like a fascinating book, and maybe when it's complete and published, we can get you on here again if you'd like. I'd be happy to. Oh, good deal. Well, thank you again for taking so much time to talk with us today. Have a great day. Thank you very much for listening to this interview of the Christian Studies channel of the New Books Network. Uh, have a great day and hope to hear from you again.